In today's episode of Top Commerce, Brent speaks with Natalie Nichols. She helps us understand the planning that business owners should start doing, even when starting a business. Tell me, Brent, did you prepare for a liquidity event in your business? Ruth, that is such a great question and overlooked by so many business owners. It took us about five years to decide that we wanted to have an exit strategy. But I think everybody should go into it thinking they should have one when they start. That's right, Brent. It's important to have an end goal in mind when setting up an exit strategy. What timeline did you have in mind when you finally decided on something? We thought about a three to five year timeline and worked with our accountant accordingly to make that happen. And Ruth, one other thing that's often overlooked is the risks and different things that could happen, including culture with the person who is purchasing the business. Definitely, planning for potential risks and contingencies is also essential to make sure the transition is successful. Now let's stop talking and start listening. Talk Commerce is brought to you by Content Basis. Have you tried machine learning programs only to find they give you repetitive garbage or worse, information irrelevant to the context of what you asked for? Do you know if the content that you're using on your website is even performing? Content Basis exists to analyze, create, and measure the content that is crucial for your product or service. Content Basis analyzes your website analytics to learn what is performing well and what is not. We dig into your search history to discover what keywords people are using to find your product and services, and what keywords people are using to find your competitors' products and services. We create a content plan to help you deliver content that wraps around your most vital products and services. And then we track the performance of this content, reassess it, and make it better. Go to contentbasis.io to learn more. The open beta program is available to new users. Go to contentbasis.io. Talk Commerce is sponsored by Haifa, or as the Europeans say, Hufa, or the right way to say it, Hufa is rapidly becoming the biggest Magento front end after Luma. For those who don't know it, Luma is the basic theme that comes with Magento and it is giantly slow. If you're looking for a template based front end with the fastest loading times in the e-commerce industry while saving costs on development time and hosting infrastructure, Hufa is your best option. Everybody loves a fast site, including Google. Improve your Google ranking and conversion rates and make your customers happy. Learn more at hyva.io. That's hyva.io. My name is Brent Peterson, and I'm your host. Please remember to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And now, talk commerce. Welcome to this episode of Talk Commerce. Today I have Natalie Nichols. She is the co-founder of Basel. Natalie, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us your day-to-day role and maybe one of your passions in life. Hey, Brent. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Be here. It's always interesting when somebody asks you to introduce yourself. I never quite know what to say because I've been so many things over my career. And now I'm the co-founder of Basal. And for those of you who aren't familiar, which is probably most of you, Basal is a ancient Gaelic word that means ethical, moral of good deed and intent, 
while honouring the Earth Mother, and we have several businesses around it. One of the ones that's probably most relevant to what we're talking about today is Albasal Academy. And as such in there, I, my role is to mentor businesses in growth, in digital marketing, in technology, and all those things that go about making businesses grow, scale, and help entrepreneurs really solve those problems around moving the needle and achieving what they want to achieve. Because at the end of the day, most of them want a liquidity event sometime down the track, whether it be three, whether it be five years. So they're moving towards that and we help them create the business that they want. And we also help train their teams in what they do as well. So prior to that, you're probably wondering how I got to that stage. I spent a long time in technology. I spent 20 years, a bulk of my career in high-end tech and managing $100 million projects in IT as far as software development and also infrastructure goes. I got to the point where I went, I called it the corporate gray, where I went into work every day and I wondered whether I was actually achieving anything. I was having the same meetings with people. It seemed that it was 12 months had gone past and we're still arguing over the same thing. Maybe just a few of the faces that had changed. And I got to thinking, there's got to be another thing out there besides this. So I went back to my marketing roots and spent quite a few years in marketing. I wrote a few books. So that was what really spurred me on to be able to crack the whole code on digital marketing. Books are a little challenging because they've got a low price point. And so you have to get really good at digital marketing in order to be able to sell any. And what most people don't know is that the world of being an author is highly competitive. So from a digital landscape perspective, about as tough as it gets. So I actually learned a lot in marketing my books and doing things like that. So that's what sort of brought me around into marketing and how I ended up here today. I'd always done a lot of business consulting along the way and here I am. But uh, long, long way round for an introduction, but at least that gives you a little bit of an idea about how I've got to where I am. No, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, so before we get started on our conversation, we're going to do what I call the free joke project. So what I'm going to do is just tell you a joke and you're just going to say, should we charge for that joke or should it remain free on the open market? Okay, should I warn you first that my husband says I don't have a sense of humor? And or that um, it's really quirky? Yeah, most people don't laugh at the jokes or they think about them. Okay, hit me with it. Warning, warning taken. All right, here mm -hmm. we go. IT guy just asked, how does a computer get drunk? It takes screenshots. Ah, nope, you can charge for that one. Because no. from a reformed IT geek, no, I like that one. That one did definitely tickle my fancy. So there you go. You yes, can say, yeah, yeah, totally get it. From being in the IT land forever, nope, love it. Love it, charge good, for good. it. <laughs> All well right, done. Thanks so much. So, uh, I Natalie. I bit, didn't I? You were thinking, I, oh yeah, my gosh, did. it's going to be a really tough audience. See, I was super yeah. easy. Yes, thank you so much. All right, so let's get into entrepreneurship and growth mode. And I like what you said earlier about setting up for liquidity, and that which is, means sort of an exit. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs start their business, and they don't necessarily have an outcome in mind where they're just doing it. They're not thinking, hey, in five years, 10 years, one year, 
20 years, I'm going to sell, what does that mean? Maybe help us understand the mindset somebody needs to do just to start out with that. Sure. As somebody that's set up and from the beginning, I think I'm up to about business number 12 or 13 from scratch. One of the things that I've learned along the way is that you have to set up with the end in mind. And whether that, when I talk about a liquidity event, that can be either selling, it can be selling part of it, could be raising capital, but generally it means having an injection of cash into the business from an outside party. And you've all probably heard about the trials and tribulations of raising capital and where the market is at the moment, it's certainly tightening up and becoming more challenging. So the thing that we always like to do when we're working with businesses, not only setting up our own, but working with others, is we say set up with the end in mind. So we try to create a large vision of what the business is going to be from the outset or what's possible. We also like to really work on the processes right from the beginning about moving through, getting those processes locked in play. Um, once you've established that you have got a business, and by that what I mean is that somebody's going to go and buy your product and it's not your aunt, your uncle, your mum, your brother, somebody like that. We like to work first getting the first 10 done. If you've got 10 people that are buy your product without having any knowledge of you and you've basically just attained them as a customer, you can be pretty confident you've got something that people want. So once you've got to that point, you really need to then start looking at the delivery and how you're going to focus on scaling and how you're going to focus on creating some growth engines at the beginning so that you can have a repeatable process around attracting those customers and then being able to deliver on it. So scaling a business is really, there's quite a few mechanical pieces that you could put into play. And in, in, the, in that scaling, do you help set up some scorecards? I know in the green room you mentioned, you mentioned the growth scorecards. In, in EOS, we have scorecards that are attached to each person. Are there different, I'm just going to keep going back to the mindset of helping the entrepreneur understand what they need to do to get to the point in which they're going to get capital sell or get funding of any sort. Are there struggles that and mistakes that maybe entrepreneurs make in doing that? Sure. All the, I see a lot of things all the time. And speaking of scorecards, one of the things that I see a lot of people shy away from numbers. In fact, I've actually had mentees in our program that have come to me in tears after we've implemented scorecarding simply because it's pulled back the curtain, so to speak, on the true performance of the business. And they've gone, I just didn't know we were profitable. We were making money. But if I'd actually taken the time to scorecard this and done this four years ago, we would have been making a lot more money. And so they feel very, numbers can be very daunting to businesses. So I actually, I learned that very on when I was met, when we started the mentoring program. And as such, I always actually give people a warning when we start to do scorecarding simply because it can be quite confronting for a lot of people. But the way that we like to do scorecarding is in, in, in two components. So we have an overarching scorecard that we run for the business around very much similar to EOS. A lot of EOS-like components are in there. But in addition to that, what we do, particularly focusing on a growth side of a business, we have one 
campaign or what we like to call customer value journey. And then we break that customer value journey down into three different metrics per each step of the customer value journey. That gives us a very clear indication of what's happening at each stage of the customer value journey. And that allows us to really drill in and figure out how to optimize, how to scale, how to adjust things along the way. You need that granularity at that campaign level. Otherwise, again, you're putting everything in a bucket and going, oh, we're profitable. That's great, but you could be so much more profitable if you actually break it down to the next level and go, okay, now we know that this campaign is really lagging behind these other two that we're doing. So our focus should be over here rather than supporting something that's not producing the goods. And it's just creating that visibility. When you've got visibility, you've got the ability to take action. And the other thing that I would also really recommend people doing is looking at your numbers, particularly sales and numbers that are around growth, around ads, all of those sorts of aspects. You need to be looking at them weekly. Don't wait for a month to go by, otherwise you're in accounting territory. You're behind the eight ball all the time. You don't have the ability to rechart course and you really want to be doing that on a weekly basis. So looking at your numbers and going, if this was our target for the month, are we a quarter of the way per se there? If not, we need to do something immediately rather than wait for another week to go by or two or three or four weeks to get to the end result. Otherwise, we're back in territory where we're in accounting mode and talking about what happened rather than what we can actually influence and in achieving our numbers that we actually want to. You mentioned, I like this idea of the customer value journey and you mentioned three steps. Do you want to, can you highlight those three steps? Sure. Actually, the customer value journey is actually an eight step process and shameless plug for Ryan Dice from Digital Marketer. Love his stuff. And we basically use his customer value journey and it's an eight step process. Awareness, engagement, subscribe, convert, excite, our core and upsell, our advocate promoter. And it's a great way to break down what you're doing with a, a particular way in which you in, invite a customer in and essentially how you turn a stranger into a super fan. And it's a repeatable process. And as growth marketers, as people that are trying to help entrepreneurs grow their businesses, we have to have processes that we can not only break down, but also repeat. And it's as much as what I see, I see a lot of people trying to do, I guess, tricky marketing and a lot of hacks when in actual fact, they need to just focus on fundamentals. And it's actually a way of thinking and looking at things. It's the way of breaking down things and having a discipline around it and having tools such as the customer value journey really help entrepreneurs think of things in a different light. So I'm very keen on sharing that and also, I guess, opening up their eyes to what's possible and getting them thinking through different lenses. Because when they do, the improvement starts to happen almost immediately. You mentioned campaigns earlier. Are these specifically for marketing or do you encompass campaigns that are non-customer focused, but maybe operational? Traditionally, when I talk campaigns, I'm talking about marketing very much and the 
correlation and the linkage, the seamless linkage between sales or sort of marketing and then sales. Sometimes it's just a marketing campaign. You don't have a sales team, but often we work with B2B businesses that have a combination of marketing and then passed across to a sales team. So that's how I would talk about a campaign is the end-to-end customer value journey, what we're going to do in there as far as ads, as far as landing pages, as far as email sequences, SMSs, and anything else that we want to throw into that campaign mix. But certainly, yes, you could look at campaigns very much also from after the effect. We very much, Tamara, my business partner, and I very much focus on having a double-ended funnel. So what we mean by that is that the sales kind of in the middle, you're attracting people into your funnel, you're doing the actual conversion, but there's just as much selling to do or assistance serving, whichever way you might want to put it on the other end as well. So it's about how you maintain that customer. You can effectively create a campaign around that and what you're going to do to support them because once you've attracted them once you've got them as a raving fan you don't want to lose them and they'll be with you for a very long time if you do the right thing by them but i can certainly see what you're saying with means in operations as well it's just all about how you look at a business yeah you're trying to tie back profitability to somewhere where you're spending money eventually or in addition to how you're spending money for marketing You had mentioned some of the fundamentals around scorecard items. Do you help entrepreneurs break down the lagging lagging indicators versus leading in? Not so much in that. Yes, I'm one of those people that I love numbers. And I didn't actually used to love numbers. Numbers were always the thing that I was like, because when you're doing numbers at school, it's all that algebra and calculus and all that stuff that's not really exciting. It's very different when they become financial numbers and you see them on a spreadsheet and you go, if I tweak this, I get this. So suddenly it becomes far more exciting. Yes, to answer your question, we don't really look at it in lagging indicators, etc. We tend to focus on numbers that are, we don't like vanity metrics because they're of no use to us. They just make, they make other people feel good about what they did. We're after numbers that have got a lot of meat. So that's why we will go through and each campaign or each customer value journey will be very different as to the numbers that you want to be using at each stage of the customer value journey. So for example, if you had a, say we had a Google, we were using say Google as our outreach to then a landing page to then some sort of call, then you may go, we had X amount of Google clicks as our, one of our first indicators. We then had 10% people, 10% of people took us up on the, they actually converted on the landing page. And then from the landing page, when we spoke to them, 15% were a good fit for our product. And then from there, we another 10% moved through to a proposal. There's all different ways that we can break down a sales or a customer value journey. We just need to look at the different steps And then we try to focus on the numbers that mean the most. So for example, if we're an e-commerce business, we like to always work from the sale upwards. So the key, the three key numbers that we would always focus on first would be our add to carts, our add to checkouts and our conversions. 
So they would be the first three that we would focus on and then trying to, to move those numbers up. Obviously the overarching conversion rate of that particular store, but they're the first three that we would be focusing on. And then you can start to bring in things at the front like new visitors. Depending upon the business, it might be engagement around posts, engagement around social may be important. I haven't seen that as that's that used to be something that was not quite so much in recent times, but very much you have to figure out each business and it's quite a unique journey as to what the numbers will be for each. So yes, there are some generalizations, but what I do like to do is uniquely look at what numbers really mean something for a particular business and a particular customer value journey, always looking to find the best mix. The other thing that we find is that the first three months tend to be a little rocky because one of the things that we ask people to do is set targets and invariably most people don't have a solid handle on their numbers. The first three months is very much a learning exercise and it's often a best guess that they're coming up with. So by tracking those numbers weekly, they're getting a lot of learning very quickly and it makes them hyper aware of their numbers. And as I said, it can be quite daunting as well, but it does create a whole level of accelerated learning very quickly at the beginning. So it's not a bad exercise and people say guessing's bad. Guessing's not bad when you're trying to set these things up because you're actually learning very quickly. And I would hope that it is an educated guess, but I always say to people, you're going to be wrong to start off with. So don't feel bad if you're way out of where you're at, but you're going to learn really quickly where things are at and it's going to make you hyper aware of what you need to be focusing on. Do you recommend a time frame? I know that you mentioned to give it a month or so. Is it a quarter that kind of helps you understand how well a campaign's doing? I like to be focusing on campaigns really quickly from the outset, particularly if you're spending money on them. If you're pushing traffic to something, then I'll be all over it from day one because I'm not in the business of bleeding money to ad companies. You know who they all are. So I'm very conservative, you might say. Well, we like to test with small budgets and then once we're comfortable that we've got something running, then we move forward and scale or optimize and then scale from there. So it's a three-step process for us, build, optimize and scale. So yes, we can get pretty decent metrics, certainly after a week or two, and we're going to be tweaking those, our funnels, our customer value journeys throughout that whole process. And having those detailed metrics at each step really helps us tweak to figure out where things are at. And also in looking at all of this, people don't forget about the, there's two, two layers of metrics that we're really looking at it, really one, one layer and another lot of data. And that's qualitative and quantitative. Obviously we've been talking about the hard numbers, the quantitative, but the qualitative is going to tell you what people actually did on your site. So don't be afraid to look at the two together because you really need the two in order to get the true picture of what's been happening on, in your funnels, on your websites, etc. Because analytics will only take you so far. It's really the psychology behind why people are doing something that you need to hone in on as well. You had mentioned earlier B2B and how it may, that's going to be drastically different from D2C. 
or even just B2C, if you're advising somebody that's been in the traditional B2B market where they don't have an inbound campaign and they're relying on their BDRs, their business resources, they're doing outbound calls, but they're afraid of spending money. Is there a magic book? Is there some magic to get inbound that to scale it quickly to move that growth needle without spending money on ads? We actually have a very slick solution around LinkedIn and LinkedIn outreach. So yes, we do a lot of work with B2B around LinkedIn and so do, and we actually use it for ourselves as well. And it's just getting good at how you run that LinkedIn outreach. There's definitely a process for it and not the introductions where you say, hey, buy, basically buy, go out and buy my stuff. You really want to create value upfront. So if you're reaching out to people for connections, if you're messaging people, then think about how you can add value to their day. Think about how you can provide them with content, with information that would be valuable to them in their position. And that's the other thing. Make sure you take time if you're going to be doing outreach to ensure that you're reaching out to the right person and then and not some sort of automated approach where a whole bunch of people just get spammed, so to speak, because nothing's more turn turn a potential great contact off than, oh, they have, didn't even have a clue what I was doing. So we see a lot of that. And it's just, it's sloppy. It's just not good marketing. But certainly from a B2B perspective, the biggest thing that we find is, and the biggest thing that, the, the biggest thing that generally moves the needle when we work with companies B2B is rearranging their sales process. We tend to find that most organizations have some really sub, sub-optimized sales processes and we can help them figure that out really quickly. We always have a pre-core and a post-product and when we're working with B2B companies, we focus on getting the pre-product sold in and that's all they need to focus on at the beginning. So we really work heavily on having a very clear roadmap for what they're selling or how, again, the customer value journey, how they're trying to move a customer through what through the sales engine, you might say. And when you change your focus from selling everything to selling one thing and doing one thing really well, it is amazing how quickly the results improve. Yeah, that's that's a good point to focus on what you're doing good at. I think a lot of entrepreneurs or salespeople fall into the trap of wanting to make the sale and saying yes to everything. And sometimes that most often that has a detriment to your team that having to learn something new or doing something subpar because they're not very good at it. I want to make a comment too. You mentioned LinkedIn outreach, how a lot of marketers tend to drop in a, a small book on your first attempt to contact somebody or it's seven or eight paragraphs of information and then you see the next follow-up is another fills up your entire screen and i can't implore how if you're a salesperson to make your linkedin outreach a conversational outreach and and I myself, I was uh, the mark. I was the marketing chair at EO Minnesota, where an entrepreneurial organization. And the difference between outreach for somebody to come in and and look at from a huge dropping a giant bunch of text and then just saying, "Hey, would you like to have a conversation about how your peer group is going?" or something like that. How a three-word 
or three sentence thing is so much more effective than a four paragraph dump of information that a lot of people are just going to ignore. You know, Brent, people don't read. And it's actually an author trick. So one of the problems that we have as students, and we've all grown up through the schooling and the college system, is that we write in a very formal way because we have to write essays, we have to create papers, all of that. And we learn a lot of rules around English when in actual fact, that's not how we converse. And really what we want to be doing with marketing, with outreach is we want to be connecting on that human to human level. And what that means is we have to be, we have to break the rules of English in a lot of cases. So that was a very much an author trick that I learned. And the last thing that people want to see when they open a book or look at a page is they don't want to see chunky paragraphs. They want to see short sentences. They want to see interesting ways in which the paragraphs are put together. So I would totally concur with what you just said. And the other thing that I also love doing is dropping in videos. So it's actually a little video connection with people because it's the same thing when you're trying to make a phone call. Who answers the phone these days if you don't know the phone number? I don't know anyone. This is like my personal little survey that I've been doing. So I ask everybody. So if you get a number that comes up on your phone that you don't know, do you answer it? And invariably, I always get no. So when I'm talking to salespeople, I say, so how are you going to get through to them if they're not going to answer their phone? So here's a little trick that I like and I'm always, I'm always mentoring them in is send them a video first. Say, hey, I'm Nat from Basal. I wanted to talk to you about blah, 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 whatever the case is. Put that video in a message and say, I'm going to be calling you from this number. Then they know who that number is and they're, they're hopefully, if you've done a good job on your video, they're excited to hear from you. Yeah, that's, if you were to hear my video or my voicemail, because in the U U.S. we get spammed with your car warranty is expiring or something like that, and I don't even answer my phone. I, if I don't know you, your voice, you don't even, my phone doesn't even ring. It goes right to voicemail, and I ask you to text me or something like that if you want to actually talk to me about something important. That is such a great point. The other point that I know that's been said a lot about messaging is white space is your friend, so don't compact a huge globule of text into one huge message where people are and you're right i think you said earlier that people don't want to read a book when you're messaging they want to have a conversation we had mentioned just earlier a little bit about the b2b and how linkedin is effective in that you're is if you still want to scale though that the linkedin campaign is still restricted to the amount of people that you can contact in a day the amount of the amount of time a salesperson has to respond to that messaging it's is that would that still be characterized as outbound mess outbound campaigns when you're doing a linkedin campaign like that yeah i would suggest that they are outbound when you're actively out there seeking out new connections there's generally it's just one of the techniques that we would use we also use a variety of other tools particularly when we're doing B2B outreach and trying to expand a B2B audience. We're big exponents of Zoom Info. Zoom Info, for those of you who don't know, is it's a godlike tool that provides information on just about every business on the planet with very deep information about the contacts. It's not a cheap thing to embark on, but if you're in B2B and looking for new leads, then it's a great tool to have. But again, 
it only goes so far. It's all about how you do the approach. Just because you have somebody's name, phone number, email, address, it's, it's not that valuable to you unless you know how you're going to go about approaching them. And I like to seed the market. So be very targeted in who you want to talk to. Be targeted in who you're going to add value to and approach it from that way. Rather than I'm going to go out and make a sale, it's I'm going to go out and add some value to people because the sale then becomes, it just becomes a part of that process. If you're adding value to somebody and they can see that you, what you're talking about is valuable and it's solving a problem that they've got, then if you, as you're doing that, you're building trust, you're serving them. And so people like to buy from people that they obviously trust, they know, and that they have a relationship with. And that's the mistake I see a lot of people make with sales. They're going in too quickly for the sale. And so effectively, it's that, that's when people get that icky feeling down their back and go, because effectively what you've done is you've broken the trust. When people get that icky feeling and they're running away, you've broken the trust and you've taken them too far too fast. So you need to slow down salespeople. I was working with a business just recently and they prided themselves on the one call close. Fabulous. But what about those people that need just a little bit more time that maybe need two or three calls? So effectively they're burning a whole segment of leads simply because they weren't prepared and they were rewarding themselves and patting themselves on the back for having a one call close. Yeah, it's lovely if you can get it and you will find some people that are quite happy to do a one call close because they're probably at a different stage in their requirement for a product. And people have different personality types too. I know exactly, most cases, exactly what I, before I even set about doing it. And a lot of people are like that now. They've done their research online. They know what they want. So they're happy to do a fast close. But there's also those people that, that, that do need a bit of time taken with them. So every person is different. And I would encourage salespeople to be a little, use your emotional IQ people and read the room. And if you think that they're going to be better with a second meeting, then go for the second meeting rather than burning that lead on the first close when, in fact, if you'd just taken a little bit more time, you would have got them. So don't be overzealous. Yeah, that's a, that is such a great point. As your service or whatever you're selling, as it gets more expensive, that it is going to be a longer closing cycle. Nobody's Absolutely. going to close. Nobody's going to buy something for a hundred thousand dollars on a whim on a first phone call. So that cycle gets exponentially longer as the process gets more expensive, and I think that certainly salespeople need to recognize that as well. Natalie, we're we're burning up time here quickly. Do you want to quickly just? Does that mean that I talk die? a lot? Because that's probably no. The this case. is <laughs> it's very interesting. This is really good. We did talk a little bit about AI and machine learning. Do you have any tips or tricks as we're going into next year for machine learning? Is there anything that people should be looking at? Is there one thing that you would recommend or two things? Look, technology is your friend. And as a technologist from way back, it's a business tool. So I would really encourage business owners, entrepreneurs to be looking at for solutions that involve AI, because if you're not, your competitors will be. 
So be very aware of what's coming down the pipeline. I know so many different pieces of tech in what I do based on the different, we could talk about this for days, on the sorts of businesses and what tech I would apply based on that. But I do have some favorites from favorites that I like around around the ridges to make sure that we're capturing as much information as possible. You've heard it all before. It's so cliched, but it is so true. Information is power. And the more information that you have about people, the more information that you have about your customers and about your business in the better positions you will be to take advantage of things. I would also suggest that technology is moving very quickly like it or not. So if you're not a technologist or excited by technology, then you're really missing out. So if it's not something that does it for you, then you need to find somebody in your organization that it, then that is going to be the champion for IT. And depending upon the size of your organization, you may not even have an IT team anymore. Most organizations can get by very happily without an IT team. And I'm absolutely fine with that because I have seen enough IT teams over my career in technology in particular really hamstring businesses based on their own agendas with IT. So I'm very much for the best technology is the technology that you have easily available to you and also the technology that everybody can use. So when I'm looking at technology for not only our businesses, but also for other people's businesses, my question is right back to the user, who is going to be using this technology and are they able to effectively not only use it, but get the information they want from it. AI is a big component of the next generation or the, it's not next anymore, it's current generation. So from an AI point of view, we're seeing a lot of personalization and particularly in e-commerce, wherever we can use AI to personalize a journey for people. So that's going to be the big frontier in, in personalized shopping, how we can customize product to suit an individual because inherently what's at the beginning or what's at the foundation of a customer value journey is our ability to connect with somebody. And the more we know somebody inherently, the more that we can say, Brent, I know that you love green t-shirts or mint green t-shirts. That's your color. I can see it in the picture behind you. You have a real affinity for mint green. So if I start to put imagery into what I'm showing you that has a mint green background, that's obviously a color that you resonate with. Whereas me with my crazy purple hair, I like purple. So maybe the AI is going to say, Nat likes purple. So let's put a purple background for her. This is where we're going with technology. Just be aware of what's coming and be a little bit childlike with interest and get excited by it. I'm not saying go down the gaming path. I've never been a gamer, but it's, it is fun what you can do with this stuff. So have a bit of fun with it. And I'm always fascinated by what more information I can get. How can I use this technology to move the needle, take me further, help people do things quicker, faster, and free up people to do more high value work, more client connections, more jig work, things that are fun for people rather than the, I guess, the cookie cutter stuff time and time again. 
Yeah, I'm going to, we have to move on to the shameless plug, but I also want to plug an AI tool I've been using or playing with and having fun with. It's called Dolly, D-A-L hyphen E, and it is such a fun tool to create your own images. And it, you can get, I don't know how many, they do it by the credit, and you can get so many credits for free for that first month. That. Yeah, it's great. All my yeah. recent blog articles that I've published on Talk Commerce have been the images I've been generating from Dolly. So I've been experimenting with everything from a comic strip to a drawing to pencil drawings to paintings to abstract. It's been, if you want to be creative, it's a great way to be creative. If you want to learn about AI, that's a great way to learn about it. There's so many great tools from the AI standpoint that, that are, this is the beginning and this is just, we're on the cusp of what it's going to be in a year ago. It was nothing like it is today. So it is also making leaps and bounds exponentially in terms of how that technology is working. You are not wrong. And I've actually just, I can't talk about it, but I have seen some amazing AI in the last little bit. In the, I was just recently in the US, I came back last week, but I've seen some AI in the gaming space that will absolutely blow your mind with what it can do, revolutionize the way games are developed. Can't talk about it too much, but ask me in six months and I'll tell you all about it in six months. But it's certainly out there and I find it exciting. I have to let you in a little inside joke. You had your joke, I have my little in my little joke. Between Tamara, my business partner and myself, we have this joke, I collect technology like shoes. Other women collect shoes, I collect software. So I must have this look on my face and she'll go, have you been shoe shopping again? And yeah, it's generally I've been tech shopping and I've bought more tech because I can't help myself. It's my kind of passion. And I love to, AppSumo is my weakness. That's, I love to get in on the ground floor of new technology that's taking off. Yeah. So I'm a big exponent of supporting people that are trying to move into the space. Yeah. I've, that's not the first time I've heard AppSumo come up. It's a so great Natalie yeah, it's, it is a fun place to be and a fun place to find new things to do. So, Natalie, as we close out every episode, I give I give the guests a chance to do a shameless plug. What would you like to plug today? Basically, if there's, we are Basile Academy, we help entrepreneurs scale, grow their businesses, get very good at marketing and, and growth. And if anyone's interested in looking at our programs, then by all means, check us out on basileacademy.com and we'd be very happy to have a chat to you. Hit us up on all the normal social channels and yeah, we're always welcoming of a conversation and that's, that's my shameless plug. Perfect. And I'll put all those links on the show notes. Natalie, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's been super fun. Great way to start my day. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Talk Commerce. Please rate this episode wherever you download your podcasts. We are actively looking for people to participate in the free joke project. Go to talk-commerce.com and sign up for your free spot on the free joke project. If you are a business, I will do a 30-second elevator pitch in the spot to help promote your business. That's talk-commerce.com.